0: If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's about for prayer. Father, as we bow before you this morning as we continue our worship, we come to the point in time where we open your word and uh, pause for quite a while to reflect and to look at and to think about and meditate on the words that you have preserved for us we ask lord as we always do that you would give to us a hunger for your word a desire to understand what is here give to us understanding give to us father uh, the ability to apply the word to the way we live to the way we think we ask lord that it would indeed be encouraging and strengthening to us That, father we may continue to grow and to mature as christians we do thank you, Father, for your word, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what, we, for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this morning, every Christian's favorite topic is judgment. I know you all just can't wait. You probably look at the bullets and, oh, this is going to be so good. Judgment. But this is not the judgment that comes on unbelievers for their sin. You know, because we kind of, li- I mean, we don't really like that. But I mean, the idea that people are going to get what's coming to them, especially certain ones, you know, certain politicians, certain, weird, certain world leaders, certain criminals, we're kind of, yeah, they're going to get what's coming to them. And there's a sense of satisfaction. But we start talking about the judgment of believers. There's not a whole lot of sermons on that. We don't talk about that much. And sometimes, some of us can have a really bad attitude. What I mean by that is this. And I know Christians have this because I've had this myself. And that is, well, I know I'm going to have to give an account of my life to the Lord. But I know this I'm not going to be judged for my sin he's not going to send me to hell, it's going to be all right. That's not a good attitude. In fact, I do, as you think about it, I think that what that reveals, it's not just apathy, it's not just you know a lackadaisical kind of attitude, it relax, it it, it, uh, reveals a lack of love for Christ. I mean, think about it this way. Say a man, when we get married, and the man knows that Because how his wife is, no matter what he does, she will never divorce him. So things go along in the marriage pretty well for a while. And then, you know, he starts looking around. And he says, well, I know my wife will get mad. I know things won't go well. But she's not going to divorce me. And when I get old, we'll still be together and I won't be alone. What would we say about that besides the fact that he's a scumbag? <laughs> we would say, hey, he doesn't love his wife. Why would he think like that? That reveals a lack of love for his wife as well as a lack of commitment and a long list of things. So when it comes to this judgment thing, you know, we, we, need, we need to understand what the Bible says. It is there for us to know and to understand. It is to encourage us. You know, this is not to be you know, just bad news and, you know, God wants to kind of press down on you and say, you need to obey because I'm going to take everything you do in life and i going to bring it into account. It should be more like when, this always happens when our kids are little, because, you know, we all change when we get older. When kids are little and you give a project to do, when they finish it, they want you to come see it. They want you to come and judge it. You know, look at what I drew. Or, you know, you tell them to clean the room. I clean my room. And you go in there and it looks like that. Well, it doesn't look like an F4 tornado went through. Maybe just an F1. You know, so it doesn't exactly pass mustard. But they want you to come and do the inspection. I'm not saying that we should, with glee, necessarily think about judgment, but maybe, maybe we should. Because we love him, we want to please him. Paul had been building up the saints, uh, he's been building up their hope in the Lord by affirming the fact that they would one day in the future go to be with the Lord, that they would receive these glorious resurrection bodies, but now Paul does want to remind them of the sobering reality that one day they and every believer is going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. They're going to give an account for all of their thoughts, words, and deeds after they became believers. When I first heard about that as a young man, I was not happy. Because I know what my thoughts are and my behaviors are and all of that kind of stuff. And so I wasn't exactly thrilled by that prospect. Let me uh, read, this is another way of saying what I just told you. This is from a a pastor in the Midwest. He says, many Christians operate from an erroneous idea that the only thing that really matters about heaven is if you get to go there or not. In reality, we will not all hold hold an equal station in heaven. Some will go to heaven empty-handed while others will enter into eternity with reward that has accumulated from their days on earth. We don't want to simply squeak in the gate, but we ought to want to hear our Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Another preacher said this, Most Christians really don't know very much about heavenly rewards, even though the New Testament has much to say on the subject. If I could just summarize the biblical teaching in a few words, it would go like this. Salvation is always by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is a free gift that cannot be earned or deserved. But when we get to heaven, we will be judged on the basis of the life we live after coming to Christ. In that day, some people will see all that they have lived up for go up in smoke. Others will receive great rewards, which are called crowns in the New Testament. I believe there will be many crowns given, some for faithfulness, others for humble service, still others for those who are martyred for Christ. I'm not sure of all the details about our rewards, but this much is clear to me. No one who lives for Christ will ever feel cheated when they finally get to heaven. No one will ever say, I should have spent more time building my own empire on the earth. And then Dr. Vernon Ground said that whenever we are faced with a major decision, we ought to ask ourselves, what difference will this make in 10,000 years? Because a lot of us do worry about small things that don't really matter, things that may not matter in three weeks or three months, or three years. We do focus on the trivial. We do forget to pursue the eternal. But in 10,000 years from now, you will still be glad that you invested your life in the work of Jesus Christ. I've, I kind of remember hearing the story when I was younger, and I, I'd kind of forgotten about it, but uh, Mercedes-Benz, and I think this was in the 70s, but I'm not sure, I think it was about that time. Uh, they ran some ads on TV, and they were describing some new Brake technology that they had developed. And they had patented it. And even though they owned the rights to the te- technology, they actually freely shared it with all the other car companies in the interest of promoting safety. And the tagline in the ad basically said, Some things in life are too important not to share. Amen. Which was kind of a, a very unusual thing for any car company or any company to do. Then or even now. So we do, we, we, do our, we do, we know this and we're aware of this that as Christians, we've been given the best news. It's the gospel in all the world. It's too important for us not to share with others. So in verse 10, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, that matters probably a lot more than you think it might. You know, I've I coached high school football for a really long time. And, um, I think a lot about back when I was in high school um, and played and, you know, I played one year in college and, you know, there's a camaraderie on a football team that is, uh, I think, very kind of unique because of the, really, the amount of suffering you go through to play football. It's kind of a weird thing, but there's a lot of suffering in football and that's before you get to play in a game and get hurt, Uh, it's just all the suffering you go through in practice and all the misery that you have to endure to play that sport. But, I, but I'm very much aware of this, and I, and I was aware of this even when I played, and that is, you know, a, a player can receive the accolades of the public, of the fans, but you know what's most important to almost every single player is what his teammates think. That's what's most important. If, if your teammates have respect for you, whether you ever hear accolades or others or not doesn't really matter. I mean, for some it matters because their egos are too big, but for most guys, it doesn't matter. There's a sense of satisfaction that your teammates thought that you were tough, or that your teammates thought they could depend upon you, or that your, your teammates knew that you would never quit. And if you had that from your teammates and from your coaches, you're good. Your, your life is okay. You, you, it's like you've got nothing left to prove. And, and I do think there's that aspect of that when it comes to the family. You know, they've already did all these psychological studies about how certain individuals seem to be able to endure incredible catastrophes in life. And they found when it comes to most kids, most kids, the ones who do the best in not only going through a catastrophe, but where that seems to have minimal negative effect, even years down the road, what almost all of them have in common Is they had a family that they knew who loved them and accepted them. That made all the difference in the world. Even 30 years later, when we ask the question, how is it this individual came from all these things and they endured? And there's those exceptions to the stories, but the bottom line is it's that. And so when it comes to this, you know, we we need to start we recognizing that God has created us in his image, he knows about us, and he's giving us this information, not only because it's going to happen because it's important, it should be encouraging and motivating uh, for us as individual believers. So let's go through, first of all, some of the words to make sure that we really have garnished the strength of what Paul is saying. He says, for. The word for in the Greek is gar. It is a term of explanation, which explains why Paul was so ambitious to please God. He knew that one day he would stand before Jesus Christ as his judge to be rewarded for his deeds in the body. Paul looked forward to that. He, he wasn't dreading that. He wanted God to reward him, but not so he could brag about his rewards. He wanted the Lord to be pleased. That's what he wanted, the Lord to be pleased. In the same way that kids want their parents to be pleased. You know, little kids growing up, they can have, again, a lot of accolades from others, but if mom and dad aren't approving, they're miserable creatures, they're not well adjusted. They need to know that they have that, and they desire that, they hunger for that. And we oftentimes do them a great disservice to our children when we just kind of push them to the side. They need our interaction, and not in a fake and phony way. They need a genuine, authentic interaction, conversation, approval, even at times criticism, that you know, all those things in life, that that enables them to to mature and to become the kind of adults that they should be. It says, for we. The word we in the Greek language here is the first person plural pronoun. What does that mean? It's thinking that Paul, as he writes, is participating with those he writes to in the truths he's now explaining. In other words, the truth about rewards to be dispensed at the judgment seat of Christ, it's only for believers. He's writing to the believing Church in Corinth, he says, we, you and I, this is what's going to happen. This is not going to happen to you and not me. We are going to do this. We're going to go through this. He says, for we must. The word must in the Greek language means to bind or tie objects together, whether you put something in prison. um, It is the root word of, of the Greek word doulos, which is bond servant or slave. It refers to that which is not optional. It is needful. It is binding out of intrinsic necessity or inevitability. It describes the believer's appearance at the bema seat. That's the, the word bema is the word for judgment in the Greek language. That's the judgment seat of Christ. It describes the believer's appearance at the bema seat as an event which by necessity must take place. This takes place by divine appointment. Therefore, it is inevitable. And our appearance is mandatory. Then again, you go on. He says... For we must all appear. The word appear means to make manifest or visible. It is conspicuous in turn. It literally means to bring to light. A primarily, It primarily means to cause to become visible, to make known, to be clearly revealed, to be manifested, or to be caused to be seen. So it's not just going to be our exterior, so to speak, or our outwardness that's going to be judged, but our interior. In other words, our character will be fully exposed in full view of our righteous, just judge. Jonathan Edwards was quite a remarkable individual. At the age of 20, he wrote these words in his diary that reflects his understanding of the certainty and the seriousness of his appearance one day in eternity future, before Christ and at his judgment seat. And so kind of putting in the modern English, he says this, Aware. That I am unable to do anything without God's help. I do pray by His grace, He will enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are in line with His will and that they will honor Christ. And so, over the course of two to three years, He worked on making a list of resolutions. These things that He was resolved to do that came out of Scripture so that He would be able to live a life that was pleasing to the Lord. His list was 70 resolutions long. It's a great read. It's right up here. You can get one after service. It's in modern English, so you don't have to worry about the kind of language they spoke. It was a different kind of English. But it's right here, and you can take it home. And just take your time and read it. And realize this 20-year-old man took the life he's going to live seriously. Now, you know, sometimes you know, he's considered a Puritan, and Puritans and people in those days get a bad rap. Everyone thinks that they were unhappy and that they were miserable. They were not unhappy people. They loved life. They were ambitious. They were creative. Those individuals, through hard work, created wealth. I mean, it was incredible what they did. So don't allow, you know, this dark cloud that's kind of floating around, that the Puritans were this, you know, mean-faced, mean-spirited, unhappy people that got some kind of joy from making other people miserable. It's not how it was. So when you read through his list, remember that he was excited about what he was writing. He was deriving this from the Scripture, and he wanted to live this way because he knew that it would please God and that he would be rewarded by God for living that way. When it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, again, the word judgment is the word bima. By implication, this refers, the word bima refers to any elevated place to which you have to ascend by steps. So in the New Testament, it's translated judgment seat. The judge invariably sat on a special seat or a throne. In Jerusalem and a lot of the smaller cities alike, they had their thrones for judgment. The judge is always up high. You go to a courtroom today, hope you don't have to go there very often, but if you do, you notice the judge is above everyone else. It's not better, but he's presiding over all the proceedings. He has to to take some steps up to where he sits. We don't call it a throne, but that's where the judge sits. And so, that is the place of authority. It's the place of judgment. And then what he says, that's it. Um, And it's going to happen. In Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in the second part of verse 26, it says, But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Now there is absolutely no way that the doctrine of the opportunity of salvation after death can be scripturally sustained. There are those who think or maybe hope that once a person dies that there's still some kind of a chance that person can become a believer or get saved or whatever language you want that doesn't happen. The scripture says you die then judgment. It's not you die, second chance, then judgment. You know, it's not you die, invitation, judgment. You know, it's you die, there's judgment. It's going to happen. Again, who's going to be judged before the judgment seat of Christ? I believe that it's evident from the context of Romans 14 and here, 2 Corinthians 5. It is a judgment of believers, the bride of Christ, the New Testament church. It's connected with the second coming or with the rapture, uh, the, the coming presence of the Lord Jesus. And again, it concerns the evaluation of our life on earth and its character and works. Now, I'm not going to get into the timing of it. There are at least five different views as to when this takes place. The five views are it takes place the moment you die. Others believe it takes place after the rapture. Uh, The third thing is some believe it happens after the second coming. The fourth is they believe it takes place during the kingdom. And uh, the fifth is they believe that it happens just before the great white throne judgment. What all those views agree on is there's going to be a judgment. And so you can... You know, study that on your own as far as when it happens. It's, it's not worth arguing about. It can be a very interesting discussion, but no need to argue about it. So even though we can't be dogmatic on when it's going to take place, it is clear, and again, this is just a reminder for us, because we need to make sure we're clear on this, that the sins of the Christian are not going to be recalled to determine salvation. Because God poured out his wrath for our sins on Christ. So this is not some sin that was so grave that you've committed that maybe even haunts you now that God's going to bring it up then. That's not going to happen. Christ suffered for all of our sin. All of my sin has been forgiven. And that's great news for us. Jesus was my substitute. If you're a believer, he was your substitute. He took all the judgment that you deserve. So God has chosen to forget the sins of the Christian in the sense that he's not going to lay them to our charge. Once justified, the Christian will always be justified because we have been judged for sin by grace through faith at the cross of Christ. So that would, that, that, that would never translate to you or I as believers having an attitude that we would take sin lightly. Now, there is the temptation to do that. Again, that's another reason why when we gather together for worship on Sunday, we kind of have a prayer that's committed to confessing sin, where we're focusing on that. We want to make sure that doesn't happen. It's not to be a downer. You know, it's not to be a heavy chain on an neck or to make you unhappy. You know, when we come to church all happy, oh, yeah, we got that part, we got to confess sin. No, it's not that. We just accept that. It's just a part of our life, and and we want to engage in that because we want to be all that Christ would have us to be, and we want to protect ourselves from being tempted and going in the wrong direction. We want to live life soberly. being Living your life soberly or seriously doesn't mean that you're devoid of happiness and joy. doesn't mean that at all. So we just want to make sure because, you know, the world and some people who call themselves as believers kind of press that on us, that that this, this, they're talking about sin and wrongdoing or in judgment, that somehow that's a, you know, that's a downer, that it's, it's something that's going to depress you or what have you. And it, it's not that way. We really choose the attitude we are to have towards that. And as we read the scripture, I know that God wants really what is best for us, which is he wants us to live our lives and bring glory to him. It's for our benefit. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what we need. And we need to know these things because it helps us. I'm sure that there's been, a, you know, there's been a few individuals who may have been tempted greatly to have an affair and suddenly notice the ring on their fingers. And that was enough to say, ah. and it stops them from doing that. You can get all the things you want about, you know, why are they in that position and why are they thinking that and all the wrong with that. But, you know, that, that ring there is important. In fact, it is interesting that individuals, some individuals, maybe many, who plan or intend to cheat on their spouse remove the ring. They remove that. And I don't think it's only because they don't want others to know because you know they think they won't be as successful in, in getting someone else to, to commit adultery with them because there are those who they, they don't care. It's for their own conscience. And so there are these things that we need that motivate us or remind us to, to do what's right. I do think often, not that I'm running around trying to figure out how I can sin against God, but there are times that I'm reminded clearly that God sees what I do. I'm convinced he's going to tell some people. I still think he told my dad some stuff I did. I don't know how he did it. I don't think he wrote it in the sky, but my dad just knew. It was amazing. It was a miracle uh, that it happened. But, you know, it probably kept me from going or continue to go down the wrong path. You know, I was steered the right way. Steered is the word. You know, you, you have to beat cows, and I was beaten at times. But that was important. And so I, I do think that this is not a negative thing. We need to see this as being positive. I don't want God to just let me go. And you shouldn't want that either. I don't want to be left alone. I, I want to be reminded. I, there was is a, a, I'll tell you a quick story. Some of you heard this. There are two guys in, in the When I was working in the prison as a chaplain on the Big Island, I was a chaplain of the jail and a chaplain of the prison. The prison is way up in the mountains. The elevation was about 5,200 feet above sea level. Uh, the only guys there were guys who committed really hard, hardened guys, guys who committed murder or whatever. There's no fence around that prison, but there's, there's nowhere to go. I mean, it's, it's way away from wherever. It's, it's, if you're going to escape, it's going to take you a couple of days uh, to get to where there's any civilization. Just to get through the thicket. Um, so there's no, no threat of that. And so there were these two guys. Uh, they had become Christians. They, they were both Hawaiian. Uh, one guy's name was John. John was a, was a good sized guy. He was about 6'2, weighed about 240. Like a lot of guys in prison, he lifted a lot of weights. The other guy was only about 5'6. But his nickname was Animal. It was befitting. Animal was pretty strong. He had a problem with his temper. Uh, there was a day, de- you know, I don't know if you've ever seen um, at a tire place where they used a crowbar. They put your, uh, the tire and the, uh, on a, on a uh, machine, and they worked the crowbar around the rim to, to, to pull it off. It's, it's, it's hard work. Well, he was doing that one day and got angry and pulled the tire off the rim with his bare hands. So animal was appropriate. Well, they both become Christians, and the way that the prison worked is the guards would make rounds every now and then, not very often, and the guys lived in dorms, and a lot of guys would go into the bathroom after lights out, 1030, and usually there were two activities taking place, though. Activity number one, there were guys studying because they are taking classes. Activity number two, there were guys who were in there smoking marijuana. And so these two guys got together and knew they both had a problem smoking marijuana, and they wanted to stop because they knew they shouldn't do that as a Christian. And so they made an agreement that after 10.30, if they were in the bathroom, the other one should be aware of it, and if this other group of guys that always do that, if they go in there, if they don't come out within a few minutes, you come in and get them. And they both made an oath to each other to do that. One night, animal was in there studying. Guys came in to do their thing. John was watching. Animal didn't come out. John went in, he said, hey dude, time to go. Animal said, not tonight. John made an oath. John said, remember what we said, you gotta come. Animal said, not tonight, leave me alone. John said, We made a promise. This is what the Lord wants. If you don't come out, because he's in a stall, I'm going to come in and get you. Animal said, no. Go back to bed. Mind your own business. John did what any Christian would do. He busted the door down, and he grabbed Animal by the shirt. Animal did what anyone named Animal would do. He hit John and knocked him through, and the stall then completely fell apart. When it was over, two toilets had been ripped off the floor, and obviously the guards came. John and Animal were bleeding a little bit, and they were put in isolation. The next day, I show up at the prison, and some of the guards are pretty happy because they knew that Animal and John always came to Bible study, and some of these guards just like to see these guys just fail. I knew it. They're not much of a Christian. These guys are phony, blah, 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 blah. And so I'm told this story. And so I say, Can I go see him? Say, oh, absolutely, Chaplain. Be my guest. So I go in this little hallway. There's there's three or four isolation cells, and there's only two that occupy, they're each in one. And uh so the guard announces real loud, chaplain's here, you know, like ha ha ha. And he leaves. and these two guys immediately come to the doors, and it's like, "Tell the Bob, tell the Bob, it's my fault, it's my fault." And no, no, it's my fault, it's my fault. And then John said, "No, brother, I should not have, I should not have, you know, whatever." And I went, "No, it was me. I was in a bad mood. It's my fault." And they were, and they started crying, and both admitting guilt, and this whole deal. I mean, it was just unbelievable, and they were just, I mean, they were truly remorseful for this mess they had created. And of course they, you know, they 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 expected to be transferred to another prison, which, by God's grace, didn't happen. They ended up being able to stay there, and you know, they both had jobs, so they had to pay for all the damage. But these individuals, they were they were committed to each other to do what's right. Now I'm not saying you should do that. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what's at stake. But the point is, is that they, they took their sin very, very seriously. These John did for a while. Animal did what we sometimes do. We just get weak, and we just don't care. You know, we're just going to give in. And we're going to. This is going to happen. And so here, the idea is, is that we want to make sure that that we are uh, doing our best to live up to the kind of reputation that a believer should have. That that we take our sins seriously, and we maybe even do what's necessary. You know, asking someone to to do that, to come pull me out of this situation if I'm doing that. If you see me doing this, you need to show up. Whatever it happens to be. That kind of thing is important. It's not just, you know, it can sometimes make for an amusing story at times. But remember that there's lives at stake, souls at stake. Who knows what direction someone's life's going to go in if we just ignore certain things. One of the things about Christian fellowship that sometimes Christians don't always get. And that is, is we do need at times to butt into each other's lives. In a healthy way. It's not that we're, you know, I'm not going to go to your house and go through your garbage and see what you're buying and what you're eating. It's, it's not that. But there is this aspect, and this, and this requires the entire body of Christ. Because not everybody's going to see everything. But some of us are, you know, we're closer to certain people than others. And maybe there's certain people who live close. We need to be aware. So we're not, you know, using binoculars and looking through the, the blinds. But as we become friends, we be, there's an awareness. So that when certain things are going on or certain things aren't going on, there's a genuine concern. It's not that somehow we are we're, we're wanting to enforce laws like the Gestapo. It's not that. It's not that we, that we take joy or, or that we're prideful in being the holier one and calling someone to account. We need to do that with great humility. And, and even recognize that we need God's wisdom to do that. But, but, there's, but that's important for us to do that as believers. Because Paul is concerned with these believers living a life of holiness. That's not to be a downer. We want to achieve that for the Lord and for his grace. Remember what's at stake. Think of it this way. If you, as a believer, do not at least pursue holiness in your life as a believer, you may be the obstacle to your children coming to Christ. I mean, that is the very real implication of that. You may be the obstacle to your grandchildren coming to Christ. It is that serious. Even if our, even if we don't have a, a, a an, an overt negativity towards the church and Christ, if we just live your life as if it's not really all that important, you know, we don't really ever bring up God, we don't really ever really read the Bible, we don't ever talk about how we're motivated to do certain things by the Bible or. or talk about our devotion to Christ, or any of those things. They do pick up on all of that. And what, and what they learn by being with us and being around us, they know what we believe is important and not important. And so that's what's at stake. Or it may not be your children or grandchildren. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe, your par- maybe you've become a believer before your parents have. They need to see that in you. Maybe the growth in the life of your spouse is at stake. Maybe, maybe you have a spouse who's kind of, you know, they're not quite doing so well in their, in their, in their growth as a believer. That does happen. We need to make sure that, that, that we ourselves are devoted. We don't just then begin to, you know, get a bad attitude back towards them. We need, to, we need to do what's right. We need to pray for them. We need to live for the Lord. And you don't want to be an obstacle to them. And so these things are not some small thing. When it comes to... Christian fellowship. There are four concepts I want to go through real quick. I'm not even going to, I won't have time to explain the first three. There's one, there's the relationship we have with Christ. We know that we're united to Christ uh, by um, a common life. There's a partnership. You know, we are to work together as believers for a common purpose, to obtain common objectives for the glory of God. There's companionship that we have as believers. We are to communicate with one another and have fellowship with one another, all those things are important to God. We're going to be judged for those things. But then there's also the area of stewardship. We need need to recognize that everything we have does belong to the Lord. Our money, our talents, our time, everything belongs to God. God has entrusted us with those things. We need to be willing to share our material blessings, our talents, our time, for the promotion of the gospel, to help those in need. We need to be good stewards of those things that God has given us. We need to recognize, again, that everything we have belongs to the Lord. When it comes to this era, these areas of stewardship, again, even though we know these things, let me just remind you, number one, the first area the believer will have to give an account for is, and that will be evaluated by the Lord at the Bema Seat, would be your stewardship of time. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith, Ephesians five fifteen and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. First Peter chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So we have to give an account for how we use our time. It's not wrong for you to be involved and to like entertainment. I can't tell you how much of your time should be devoted to being entertained. But we have to answer to God for that. Everything that we do, every decision that we have that we make needs to be, we need to use this paradigm that comes from the scripture. When it comes to your spiritual gift or gifts, everybody has a spiritual gift. God expects you to use your spiritual gift The spiritual gifts that are given to us are given to us, first of all, and primarily to minister to the body of Christ. That's why involvement in church is important. That is the easiest, most commonplace, that we share our gifts with each other. And then the relationships that come out of that that extend out into the community as we see each other and these kinds of things. Whatever gift or gifts God gives to you, you need to use those, whether it's hospitality, giving, administration, whatever. We use those things to build up the, the, build of the body of Christ. So it's not necessarily just using it officially in the church in some position. It may include that. But it really has a lot more to do with the relationships that we have with each other. I believe that my gifting is to be able to explain the Word of God. That can come a lot of ways. But imagine if you sent your son or your daughter to say, oh, maybe you should go talk to Bob. I think he would know what the Bible would say he could help you. What if I told them, look, um, I just preach. So just come listen to my sermons. You're like, what? Because you might be thinking, I thought you were my friend. I sent my daughter to you, my son, and that's what you're going to tell him? What you would expect me to do, and you might say, well, I expect the pastor to do this, but it's not so much the pastor. It should be this guy that you know, and you want him to be willing and able to take the time to sit down with them and talk with them and listen to them and then share what the Word of God says. That's what you are hoping for and expecting. Not someone who says, well, I exercise my gift in the church Sunday morning starting around 1030. Right, that's, that's not going to cut it. And so all the gifts we have are for each other, and, and we're going to be called into an account. When it comes to, uh, I'm, going to I'm going to read this. It'll take just a couple minutes. I'm going, to read this. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read from Romans from a paraphrase. Let me just tell you my personal belief. Paraphrases are good when it comes to thinking about how to apply the Scripture. I don't think paraphrases are all that helpful for interpretation. You have to study for that, I think, and there's a lot that's there. But paraphrases can be good in helping us see it a little differently and hear it a little differently in the application of what it's saying. So I'm going to read from Romans 12 from a paraphrase. Paul would write this. So here is what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, sleeping, eating, going to work, walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. I'm speaking to you out of, out of deep gratitude for all that God has given me, and especially as I have responsibilities in relation to you. Living then, as everyone, every one of you does, in pure grace, it's important that you do not misinterpret yourselves as people who are bringing this goodness to God. No, God brings it to you all. The only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what he does for us, not by what we are and what we do for him. In this way, we are like the various parts of a human body. Each part gets its meaning from the body as a whole, not the other way around. The body we're talking about is Christ's body for cho- of chosen people. Each of us finds our meaning and function as a part of his body. But as a chopped-off finger or a cut-off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed, and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. If you preach, then just preach. God's message, nothing else. If you help, just help, don't take over. If you teach, stick to your teaching. If you give encouraging guidance, be careful that you don't get bossy. If you're put in charge, don't manipulate. If you're called to give aid to people in distress, Keep your eyes open and be quick to respond. If you work with a disadvantaged, don't let yourself get irritated with them or depressed by them. Keep a smile on your face. Love from the center of who you are. Don't fake it. Run for dear life from evil. Hold on for dear life to good. Be good friends who love deeply. Practice playing the second fiddle. I like that a lot. I think it's very practical. I do like the part about if you give guidance, don't get bossy. It's kind of hard to get more plain than that, but it's a good way to be. Let me just, uh, let me just read this one last thing to you. And we'll be done. Even though we're not going to be condemned for our sins at the judgment seat of Christ, our present lives do affect what will happen at the judgment seat of Christ. So in this life, sin and indifference rob us of a present desire to serve the Lord. And that then means a loss of rewards because we will not have used our time for his glory. That's why Paul exhorts us to be careful how we walk. Sin and indifference result in a loss of power in our lives because sin grieves the Holy Spirit. Sin and indifference causes us to pass up opportunities for service which we would otherwise perform and be rewarded for. I don't know who said this, but I think this is important. The greatest consequence... Of unfaithfulness here on earth is that it disappoints Christ. One of the greatest fears that most kids have is they don't want to disappoint mom and dad because they know mom and dad are important to them and they love them and they know that mom and dad love them. We know all that Christ has done for us and what he's given for us. It really should be in our hearts that we never want to disappoint Christ. And there are times that we are living our lives in such a way that our lives disappoint Christ. But like a disappointed parent, a disappointed parent is quick to forgive because they love their children dearly. And God is quick to forgive his children. He wants happiness for you. He wants you to be successful and to be fulfilled and to be satisfied. He wants you to experience deeply his love for you, your wife's or husband's love for you, your children's love for you, and your love for your children. That's what he wants for you. And he's going to give all that to us and more in the future. But we can have a great taste of it now to show the world the reality of who God is. But it doesn't, we won't be successful in doing that if we're pursuing sinful desires. And so once again, we need to remember that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of how we have lived our lives or how we have not lived our lives for him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your goodness and your incredible patience. Father, we know, and maybe it's all of us, we have failed you miserably, and you didn't take our lives. You you didn't lose your patience with us, and we thank you. We ask you would strengthen us. We ask, Lord, you would encourage us that, Father, we may live in obedience to your word. Not, Lord, that we can feel better about ourselves or have less guilt because that would take care of itself. But, Father, we may please you because, Father, we know as we read through your word that if we live to please you, we will find and experience joy and contentment. And life will be so much better There are those here today, Lord, who don't have that. They'll, they may try to live in obedience to what you have said, but they're only trying to do it in the flesh. And they will become disappointed and even bitter. And so, Father, I pray that you would reveal to them that they're unable to follow your word. They, they'll never be able to please you in the flesh because their sin separates them from you. And that has to be dealt with first. But it's dealt with not by the giving of money or by performing certain deeds. It's by placing our faith, our trust in Christ and what he's done, what he did for us and believing in him. We pray Lord that you would draw them to yourself and they would believe. Help us Father to share your word, the wonderful gospel wherever we go and to live for you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.